Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, July 12th, the Privacy is Dead edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. I'm joined in the New York studios by June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. By the way, listeners, in case it sounds different, I'm recording myself from a tiny booth. A shout out to Headroom Studio and Kyle Pulley in Philadelphia. Um, it should sound great, but uh, just letting you know that um, we're just recording in a slightly different way today in case it sounds funky. June, Noreen, we haven't been together in a while. I'm so happy to talk to you guys. Y'all have been taking vacations while I'm sitting in the office here. (laughs) It's nice to be back. Um, Anyway, listeners, we are having a live show July 17th in D.C. at the Hamilton Theater. There are still some tickets left. You can buy them at slate.com slash live. We would love, love, love to see you there. So please show up. We have special musical guests, special Brainiac guests. It's (laughs) going to be a great show. All right, let's jump into our topics. First... Trump announces his Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. We speculate on the future of abortion rights with special guest Linda Greenhouse. Second is falling birth rates. It's considered a demographic catastrophe, and it's often framed as women's fault or as a result of women's decisions we discuss. And finally, two strangers on a plane fall in love, kind of, flirt at least. Someone live tweets that interaction, and the internet gets pissed. We talk about hashtag plane bay. And then in our special summer Slate Plus segment, we will discuss... In our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking, is it sexist to have kind of different standards for judging women being kind of stripped down uh, to their bikinis uh, when they're not poolside than, than than the way we judge men? Is that a sexist reaction? If you want to hear our discussion about that, join Slate Plus. You can find out more information about that by going to slate.com slash... The Waves Plus. All right. Let's talk about falling birth rates. The U.S. is joining the list of industrialized countries with falling birth rates. Our birth rate hit a historic low in 2017. That just means fewer women having babies, by the way. And this puts demographers in a panic for a lot of good reasons. It means fewer people paying taxes in the future, fewer workers, weaker economy. But the way the story is studied and told, it is all about women, women's choices, women's lifestyle, women's careers. So we discuss the framing of the falling birth rate topic. June, maybe you can start us off by saying some of the theories that get thrown out out there about why birth rates are going down. Yeah, well, first, let's note that, as you mentioned, Hannah, uh, the U.S. has been an outlier in this. Most industrialized countries have been sinking The birth rate has been sinking. And the U.S. was something of an exception because of a a few factors. One, we had a very high teen birth rate. We had uh, also a lot of Hispanic immigrants who have a higher birth rate. So that was kind of protecting us, if you want to use that that term, uh, from from following the pattern of other nations. Uh, But 
That has now changed somewhat, thanks in part to IUDs and thanks in part to Trump's immigration policies. So when it comes to theories as to why the birth rate is falling, uh, actually there was a, a, a study that this company called Morning Consult did recently where they spoke with 1,800 Americans aged 20 to 45 and asked them why they were making decisions about uh, giving having children. And the reasons they cited were like expensive childcare. Like it's really expensive to have children and to uh, keep your children uh, while you're at work. Um, the loss of free time. People wanted to, people work so much these days, they wanted to enjoy some leisure. Uh, general economic concerns, just the economy and, and would they be able to kind of, you know, keep their kids in the style to which they would l- the style to which they've become accustomed. I think we all are familiar with this concept of people now breaking this pattern of, of kind of having a, a better or more economically successful life than their parents, and also a lack of romantic partners. Uh, people may be wanted to have kids, but just didn't have somebody to have the kid with and did not want to have the child alone. So those were the main reasons that were offered in this study. And we should say, in thinking about the economic reasons, that actually 2008 was the inflection point. That 2007, I believe the birth rate was the highest it had ever been. And then it dropped the last year and it's been dropping ever since. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that list, because it's always speculative, like, you you, you know, you're just sort of in your head thinking, why why yeah. am I not having children? So um, it's kind of aspirational, speculative about some idea that you have about yourself. Mm-hmm. Like countries that do have, you know, reasonable child care and a much healthier relationship with leisure time than we do also have really low birth rates. Um so it always makes me puzzle in these studies. Like, what is it really about? Yeah. Like, when a country's birth rate starts to fall, like, what is the broader – what is going on? You know, is it just some general sense of insecurity that no one can quite put into words? It's, like, hard for me to understand why it's actually happening. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right about that, Hannah. But just to push back a little bit, even though birth rates are down all around – in countries that prioritize gender equality, uh, so we've taken a bit places like Sweden, Norway, France, they do have higher fertility rates than other places, places like Germany, Italy, the UK, Japan, especially. So it's not like it's all, it's yes, it's all down, but it's down less in places that that prioritize equality. And here it's up. The birth rate is up fairly dramatically among older women, yeah, women, yeah. I think it's over, over 40, 40 yeah. um, which, you know, a lot of those women are using interventions that can be quite expensive. And then also women with graduate degrees, women who've never been married, all of those, um, in all of those groups, the birth rate is up, which is interesting. Um, but the, to me, the number that, or the the set of statistics that is interesting is the difference between the number of children women would like to mm-hmm. have and the number of children they're actually having, right? Um, because you could sort of, Imagine that in a place where there is greater support for childcare, um, in some of these European countries we always talk about, like, you know, Mecca, um, the people that, that that's pretty close. Whereas here, there's, I think, you know, the average woman would like to have 2.7 children, I think it is, and, and she's having like 1.5 or something like that. Um, and that actually is a meaningful statistical difference, right? Yeah. Like, so it's not as if um, people, People are getting their they're um, getting what they want, and and um, 
you know, in case in case men want to know, <laughs> the the male wish for children actually pretty closely tracks onto women's wishes. That's funny, though. To me, that's just about like an aspirate. That's like you don't really want that necessarily, um, says the mother of 2.7 plus point three <laughs> children. Like you, it's just like this idea you have of yourself. Like it's funny how you use the word want because it's like an idea you have of yourself. But then like in the moment you want something else, like you want more leisure time or you want more control of your own destiny or your time or something like this. It's like desire is a funny thing in these things. And June, what you said is so interesting because you're essentially saying the opposite of what most theorists are saying, which is that it is it is highly cor- the dr- the initial drop in birth rate is correlated with gender equality, and that's like really strong. That's like the handmade tale territory, right? And that's where all the kind of troublesome discussions happen. Like it's women's choices and women's connection to their work or whatever. But you're saying it comes back around, and then places that have really strong gender equality, it's like have high have have that the birth rate ticks up again like how does that work i'm not sure it's up and down i think the 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 uh the notion is just that you know in the modern age where you know all of the factors that we could talk about you know people don't need 11 children to run a farm anymore you know there there's just uh, there just the consciousness of you know, and just the notion of choice is different these days uh women are working so that changes things you know these really basic things in industrialized countries where choice is a factor, uh, when governments prioritize gender equality, when they actually take steps uh, in countries specifically like Sweden, Norway, France, there there are higher fertility rates. Now, in places like Japan, which are having a really serious problem because they also eschew immigration, the government takes steps. They, you know, they do things. They they enact policies to try to encourage women to have children. But that's like that's not the same as prioritizing gender equality. That's prioritizing having children. Those are not the same impulses. No, those are often opposite. Like Germany yeah. did that too, and it yeah. always feels handmade taily when countries do that. Like we did that with our well, like there's all every time the government makes a policy to try to encourage women to have children, it just feels wrong to yeah. me. Like it, to me, like the the whole discussion about women's choices, it just irritates me because it's not a women's thing. Like I understand that the women like like they carry the baby that's a biological fact but it's it's like a it's like a cultural thing like if the culture mm-hmm. wants to prioritize having more children like like it's so what why women you know they're like fathers in the picture and there's workplaces in the picture it seems to me that women are the least of the 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 issue and the least of the thing that we should talk about endlessly in in terms of childcare it's it's everybody but women that it, is where the focus should be you know yeah i mean i think this is one of the instances where um, f- there's more crossover between feminists and a certain kind of conservative than not. Yeah. And I feel like the, I feel like there should be more bridge building happening to get the shared goal of like more family friendly policies in workplaces and in the government. Um, I am so fascinated by the conservative obsession with the birth rate. Um, you know, the, the Ross Douthats of the world are, you know, I think interested in it for slightly different reasons than we are. Um, uh, that you know, it is it is a move away from a family centric 
way of life, et cetera, et cetera. But then there is this larger demographic argument that if you fail to replace the population, you won't be able to fulfill safety nets, which is a real thing. Yeah. And and then, of course, the liberal answer to that is, well, we need more immigration. And then um, there's something that... Uh, the Atlantic's uh, Derek Thompson has called the doom loop, which is the doom loop of, of Western civilizations, which is that when you do um, sort of open the borders, then it creates this xenophobia that we're sort of in this moment now where there's this backlash against the immigration that's meant to, you know, replace the um, the, the population. And then you um, then have a decline in the welfare state. And then it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then Ross Douth, that actually complicates this argument a little more and goes into sort of, you know, the psychology of people who are thinking about their legacy and they're looking at, the, they have fewer grandchildren than they'd expected. Maybe they have no grandchildren and they're looking at America and they're not seeing people like them. And that's where you get the sort of impulse to, you know, go the Trump route or, or go the sort of ugly um nationalist route. And I just think it's so complicated to untangle the impulses there. But the end goal for a conservative like Ross Douthat, for instance, just to pick on him um, or pick him out, um, is not actually actually all that different, theoretically, than what we are talking about, what we want in our feminist utopia. Mm-hmm. Well, what about, okay, so let me, just to define a little bit the feminist or, or a place where where the left or the right can meet, is it something like you know, destiny over your or 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 like it, it's just like control over your family choices or something like that. It's like it's almost like family planning, like it keeps the idea of family, although how you define a family, I don't mm-hmm. care. Do you know what I mean? I don't care if they're married. It's like, you right. know, they're just just control over your family choices, which could include abortion, but sort of helps people think of, oh, maybe one day I do want these things that Ross is talking about. Like I would like to have grandchildren or I would like to have the security and comfort of family. So as a society – and by 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 one day, I mean, like, this is men, this is women, this is everybody. Like, let's help plan for families to happen in the most like in the most reasonable way possible. Well, what do you mean by control? See, I don't see this as a control issue. I see it as a support issue. Right. And I think the rebranding has to happen. Like what actually we need are like, you know, safety nets and, and measures that allow, you know, women to, you know, maybe we don't need a full year of maternity leave or whatever they have in Sweden. But um, but I think there needs to be a way to rebrand these sort of Scandinavian ideals to be palatable to someone who just wants to, you know, a, a, a sort of more traditional family setup to be possible in America. But why does it have to be a traditional like like why it doesn't does it, it have doesn't to have be? to be. I don't think it has to be. But if you're trying to if you're trying to build this coalition with people, I think you just say family, right? And define family yeah. however you want. Like family can be one mom or one dad by themselves, whatever, you know. Um, but and maternity leave is parental leave. Please. Yes. Like it's not maternity leave. Like yes. everybody's fine to take care of the kid. It's just like parental leave. Yes. And, well, one thing that's really striking to me is that the as in the studies that, you know, that came out recently, and I absolutely hear you, Hannah, that these are just like, I'm trying to give voice or I'm trying to put my finger on what this strange inchoate impulse is. So it's like it's not it's not as scientific as we might you know want it to be. But so much of these feelings that people are saying, I'm what people are actually saying when they say I'm not having as many children as I want is it's like it's not working out for me. And most of the reasons are anxiety. It's like I can't 
can't live my dream because I'm just anxious about costs, about finances, about being able to raise these children. And so that's why what you said, uh, Noreen, about support feels very strong. You know, these are these are, are vague senses of I'm not sure I really can put this on my shoulders. But you'd have to do a class analysis to see if that was true. Like, from my understanding, it's not it's not the people with m- more money. It, it's not people with who, with means are the ones who are anxious about having children or with slightly more means. I'm not sure that there's a lower birth rate in people who are poor. No, but that's, I don't think that's the same, though. I think it's not so much about, like, you need X dollars. It's about how you feel. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel that you are financially secure enough to handle children, especially if And that you'll get support. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I actually think that in many cases, those feelings of anxiety are higher among people in upper income brackets because their sense of what is required is, is more is elevated. And so I'm not sure that it, you know, everything is class, class is relevant to everything. But I don't, right. I think it's more about what drives people's sense of I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite there. I don't feel quite comfortable or I don't feel quite secure. It's also like what we're talking about are actually, you know, even these in even these family friendly policies that we're discussing or or um are sort of a band-aid, right? Like yeah. uh people are moving away from their families for work, which makes it a lot harder to do the childcare thing, right? And in, in past years you could, you know, rely on older family members maybe to or sisters or brothers to watch the kids. That's that's sort of frayed. Everyone, you know, um people like rent is so high, student loans are so high. These are like actually really big economic issues that I think, you know, it's you can't totally separate them out from the discussion that we're having, but it's hard to sort of bring that all in because you get way too depressed. But I think <laughs> you know, sure, lowering childcare would would or lowering the, lowering the cost of childcare or helping um, you know find some alternative ways of doing that would help. But also like these bigger f- economic forces, I I think you just can't discount. Yeah, them. a giant number of people in the U.S. cannot find four hundred dollars like. Uh, you know, right. with no notice. Right. So the idea of, you know, these these are not like I, they're not like it's not like you're pulling down a budget and like no, nah, I'm still fifty bucks short. Like no, it's it's just there's the 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 overall pressures are so intense that I, I think it's it's it is this this general free floating sense of economic anxiety that is absolutely justified. We should say. Well, it just feels like it's the cornerstone of a building, and if we could figure out this piece, other. Other bits of the larger social political conversation that we're having would come into place more easily. Like this is there's so much that rests on this and that this supports that I don't understand why it's actually not getting more attention from both the right and the left. I mean, I when I look back on this kind of feelings of dread I had around having children and kind of nervousness and all these anxieties that that people are talking about, they, it's it, they they have to do with a kind of like cultural like cultural alienation, like a mm. sense that the thing that I was doing was so out of sync with like all the signals and cues around me and like I was alone you know like and which is crazy because it's like humans have children but (laughs) but I but I felt like it was like a sort of alien isolated it, it was an alien isolated activity that I had to like cordon off from the rest of my sort of life um and that's really weird like I think that's very American um, like it feels alien in the world. Like it just feels alien. Like you're doing something particular and distinct and only you are doing it. But at that time, 
many of your friends must have been having children, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't well, literally I had earlier than other friends, but huh. it's like, but then you end up, it's like, I, you know, then you, then is it like, you know, a community of mothers? Say, like, that's not going to work for me either. Like, I just want it to be all part of the mix of life, you know? Like, your employer should not be like, whoa, like having to come up with some special plan for you because you're having a baby. It's like everybody has a freaking baby, you know? It's like <laughs> it's not such a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it feels like such a kind of rupture in the kind of fabric of like modern, maybe just urban life. I don't know. I, I sort of buy that as a distinctly American thing. But what do you think that comes from, Hannah? Because we are sort of like this country that we're in our fabric. It's it's like supposedly like everyone's got a two car garage and like 2.5 children. Like where where do you think that separation comes from? Is it like a holdover from sort of, you know, men are the ones who go to work and women stay home and that kind of segmenting? I mean, I think we have and this is like why the 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 dream and the reality feel so just like far apart to me. I think we have a sense of ourselves as a country which like, you know, say say the right and in some sense the alt right is like hanging on to with like, you know, great biological evidence and then we have the actual reality <laughs> of people's lives which is like lots of single working mothers, a lot of gender equality, tons of women in the workplace and and we just can't like catch up to the damn reality. Like, we just can't catch up to the idea that, like, we we have a totally different workforce than is in the country music. And so, <laughs> and I don't mean just, like, in urban centers. This is true everywhere, like, yeah. and in most of the social classes. And so catch up, you know, and then people won't feel so, like, weird and alienated. And I think it will, like, maybe that's the cornerstone. I'm not really sure. And, I mean, certainly there are policies that are needed, too. I mean, when we were, you know, reading up on this, I was really shocked to learn that 88% of U.S. workers get no paid leave, according to the Labor Department, and that one in four mothers go back to work less than two weeks after giving birth. I well, mean, because there's, is, but there are so many small businesses in yeah, America, yeah. which is also such a yeah. big part of like yeah. our national like vision of ourselves. And if you're running a small business, the margins are, you know, like really difficult. So you can't yeah. maybe afford to yeah. do that. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets into a, you know, like like actually big corporations in this instance can be can be heroes. Yeah. All right. So. All the big corporations are heroes. That's where we're going to end this segment. Go corporations. I know June loves that. Big fan. Big fan. If you play that backwards, it says communism lives. All right. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So let's do our next topic, the future of abortion. Trump this week nominated Brett Kavanaugh, a federal appeals court judge and a favorite of the conservative Federalist Society. Kavanaugh is more establishment than social conservative, and we don't know all too much about his views on abortion. But Trump himself has vowed to only appoint justice who will overturn Roe v. Wade. So we talked to Linda Greenhouse, who writes an op-ed for The New York Times and is now at Yale Law School. Hi, Linda. Hi, Hannah. Hi, everybody. So, Linda, there is such a wave of speculation that comes out at these moments, you know, about a quarter of it about abortion. (laughs) So we are really counting on you to help us sort it out. So if I could just start with a super basic question, what do we actually, actually know 
about Brett Kavanaugh's views on this topic? Well, of course, the D.C. Circuit, the federal appeals court that he has sat on for the last 12 years, doesn't really have abortion jurisprudence. The only encounter he had with abortion came this past year with the Garza case, which your listeners are probably very familiar with, the pregnant teen who the Trump administration tried to prevent from exercising her constitutional right to terminate her pregnancy. And this reached the D.C. Circuit, and it was very, very fractured opinion. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh wrote uh, a separate opinion saying, well, the Trump administration should have 10 more days in which to find a sponsor for this young woman because this is such a serious uh, decision and uh, Supreme Court precedent tells us that the government has a valid interest in protecting fetal life. Uh, This sparked uh, many uh, of his colleagues on the D.C. Circuit to object vigorously, and uh, the D.C. Circuit ultimately uh, ruled that the abortion could go ahead. So, you know, that's a bit of a red flag. And Uh, and Linda, if I I can just interrupt you, it's a red flag because... Um, it's when we say that uh, Kavanaugh was trying wanted to give ten more days. This the sense there is that he was trying to run down the clock because there's a twenty week limit in Texas where the young woman was, and you know that that talk, clock was ticking down. And there's a feeling right that he was kind of instead of saying what he was doing, he was using this as a pretext, right? Well, you know, honestly, I don't want to be in a position of saying that he was being sneaky about it. I think what we learned from it was that uh, he seemed to put an awful lot of stock in the Trump administration's really extraordinary arguments and extraordinary behavior in this situation. Uh, The the, uh, anti-abortion activist who was in charge without any obvious qualifications of the care and feeding of uh, young unaccompanied minors who were in federal immigration detention had just made it his personal project to make sure that none of them who were pregnant could get abortions if they wanted to have abortions. And so, you know, Judge Kavanaugh was very deferential to this. Now, whether he was trying to run out the clock or whether uh, he had, you know, he just had some other goal in mind of deferring to the president, I, you know, I'm not going to say, but certainly... Uh, this pregnancy was very far along, mm-hmm. and uh, she'd been requesting an abortion for, I believe, more than a month, and the 20-week deadline was indeed looming, and one would have thought and hoped that any judge with the uh, uh, power to have the future of this young woman in his hands would have been cognizant of those facts. You know, you've written about this, but like there's we have this expectation that there's going to be this confirmation and we're going to learn stuff about his views, but we might learn nothing, right? I mean, we might what you just said is the totality of what we might know even after the confirmation hearings. Like I just want to prepare people to be realistic about what's going to happen next. Well, I think that's right. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the only justice justice nominee at a confirmation hearing to fully and unequivocally endorse the right to abortion. And, of course, she did that because her positions were well-known, and also uh, she wasn't afraid to say what she thought. And 
I don't think anybody else has ever said anything beyond, uh, well, Roe against Wade is a precedent of the Supreme Court, and there's such a thing as stare decisis, which is uh, basically respect for the doctrine of respect for precedent, and of course, uh, you know, I, the nominee, am aware of that. And, and if you remember back in John Roberts' confirmation hearing to be Chief Justice back in 2005, he had a lot of fencing with Senator Arlen Specter uh, on the Judiciary Committee. I think Specter was then a Republican. He, he eventually became a Democrat, but they were, but Specter was a pro-choice Republican, and they were fencing about, well, yes, abortion is a, a row against weight is a precedent. Is it a super precedent? because it's been reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood against Casey is a super-duper precedent, which means <laughs> it's even less likely to be overturned than some other precedent, and Roberts really wouldn't play, and I wouldn't expect uh, Judge Kavanaugh to, to play. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say something else. So uh, people have probably heard about this Minnesota Law Review article that uh, Judge Kavanaugh published in 2009, and... Uh, it, it's been kind of reduced to a cartoon in the conversation on on the left, I have to say, with some disappointment, because he has some thoughts in there about uh, the extent to which the president should or should not be uh, held liable to criminal prosecution while sitting in the White House and so on. It's actually a very nuanced and uh, thoughtful article. Uh, one can debate it, one can disagree with it, but I think it's unfortunate to turn it into a cartoon. And along the way, he talks about uh, the judicial confirmation process, which, of course, he went through to go on the D.C. Circuit, and the Supreme Court confirmation process. And he says in there that uh, it's appropriate for the Senate to uh, learn about a nominee's general judicial philosophy. Now, that's hardly a promise. In fact, he says, of course, not to be pinned down with how they would decide certain cases. We all agree on that, I think. Uh, but I think he's the first one in quite a long time to even acknowledge that judicial philosophy is appropriate. And so uh, he can be asked about his notion of the meaning of liberty, of due process, of equal protection, of all those parts of the Constitution that have built up a jurisprudence of abortion rights, uh, which we now have and which is obviously in peril if there are no longer five votes on the Supreme Court to stand up for it. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think we can expect to, to hear from him about his view of the role of a judge in a system that's governed by a rule of precedent and that for almost half a century uh, has recognized... Uh, autonomy for women in their reproductive lives. And I, I, I look forward to hearing that conversation. Linda, you mentioned um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, and, you know, the, the conversation that we're all having is around Roe being overturned. But I wonder if you could talk about sort of um, maybe any indications that what might happen is that people, that is that Kavanaugh, given the way he weighed in in the Texas case, might go after the the undue burden test before something like that. Yeah, well, of course, the way to get rid of the right to abortion without directly overturning Roe or Casey, and of course, we now understand Roe to be the right to abortion as defined by Casey with the undue burden standard, is simply to never find that anything is an undue burden. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that, that was the question before the court 
two summers ago in Whole Woman's Health Against Heller's Death. That was the, people may remember, that was a Texas case, the the case aimed at shutting down uh, most of the abortion clinics in Texas by imposing uh, completely unnecessary and burdensome regulations on them, and the court was asked to find whether those regulations were or were not an undue burden. And five justices, including Justice Kennedy, found they were an undue burden, and the Texas law was overturned. So that's, you know, that's always going to be the question. And, uh, you know, are there, are, are there going to continue to be five votes that will find at least some abortion regulations to be an undue burden? And where is that line going to be drawn? That's really the question. So is that... I mean, I know it's not for you to game things out because who knows? He's a reasonable justice, you know. Um, but that's one possible path is what you're saying is that you could keep Roe v. Wade in place, but then just not, then find nothing an undue burden so that it will become yeah. a kind of state by state uh, patchwork of, of, of abortion legislation. Like, that's one f- possible future vision. Yeah, that's kind of the law we have today uh, in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the circuit that includes Texas and Louisiana, um, two very anti-abortion states, where uh, the Fifth Circuit simply never finds any burden to be undue. So that's, you know, that's one way to go. Of course, the other way to go is simply say, uh, you know, as the, court, as the court said in Lawrence against Texas, uh, the gay rights decision from 2003 when the court overturned Bowers against Hardwick and said Bowers was wrong when it's decided, it's wrong today, and it's hereby overruled. I mean, the court's completely capable of doing that if it has a majority, uh, is, is to do that with Roe. And, and I think there's a, uh, there's a template for doing that, and that came from a decision this term uh, last month in June that... Uh, I think people haven't paid sufficient attention to, and it certainly on the surface has absolutely nothing to do with abortion. That was the Janus case, J-A-N-U-S, uh, about uh, public employee unions. And the court there overturned a 44-year-old precedent. Of course, Roe, I think, is, what, 47 years old. Um, a precedent that says that uh, state workers in a bargaining unit that has a union. Uh, if they don't want to join the union, they don't have to join the union, but they do have to pay that portion of the union dues that goes to covering the collective bargaining activities from which all workers benefit. And how could the court overturn that earlier decision, a case called Abood? Well, it happened that within the preceding six years, Justice Sam Alito, probably one of the most anti-union justices ever to sit on the Supreme Court, had teed up a series of cases in the hope that one of those cases would be the vehicle that could get him his five votes to overturn the old precedent. And the first couple of cases didn't quite get him there. So he larded those cases up with what's known as dicta, which is not the holding of the case, but is basically a judge speaking. And so by the time this term in the Janus case, he finally had the right vehicle, he finally had his five votes. What he did to justify overturning the old precedent was to cite his own dicta, which he had written and deliberately put in those earlier cases, as if that dicta was actually settled law, which it was not, but he treated it as if it was. 
Uh, Justice Elena Kagan did a brilliant job at calling him out on this in her dissenting opinion. And you can see that happening with Roe. You can see a series of cases where they don't quite have the opportunity or the appetite or the political moment or whatever to fully, flatly overturn Roe, but they'll have a series of decisions where they speak ever more harshly about Roe. And so when the moment comes, when they think they've hit the right, the sweet spot, the right moment, uh, they've got all this language. And they can say, as we said here, as we said there, and now it's time to finally do it. Linda, I know that you're a legal analyst rather than a political commentator, but it, I mean, that, you, what the thing that you just described is exactly the reason that I, a very calm person, I'm, you know, just up in arms about these uh, confirmation hearings because over and over again, we see, uh, you know, candidates, nominees just saying that, of course, they'll obey precedent. You know, yes, yes, star decisis, as you said earlier. But then in cases like Janus or Epic Systems, they just completely throw out precedent and, and you know, find these justifications when it suits them. And there's nothing we can do. There, there's absolute impunity for doing that. And that just feels like, the, you know, given the importance of things like this, is like... Is there anything that can be done about this system, which at least to me seems very broken? I think it is very broken. I don't think there's anybody that could argue that it's not broken. Um, I'm not sure what can be done, really, uh, other than to make sure the public understands what game is afoot. And, and that leaves it up to the, the senators, the members of the Judiciary Committee, to you know, they, they can't waterboard these, these nominees. You can't, you can't force them to speak. But you can make sure that the public understands the context in which they are refusing to speak and understands that, oh, I respect stare decisis is not an answer. It's a slogan. It's a, it's a mantra. But it, it's, no, it's no guarantee. It's no safe harbor. And just, you know, the senators need to keep hammering on that so at least the public may ultimately be very disappointed, but at least the public won't be fooled. Linda, I wonder what you think of the notion, which may just be a liberal fantasy, that um, John Roberts is so invested in the integrity of the court and sees it turning into, you know, a more political institution by the day that he might, you know, confront it with someone like Kavanaugh, um, who it doesn't seem like a exactly a firebrand, but would tip the balance of the court to maybe overturn some of these longstanding decisions that Roberts might take a more moderate turn himself. Is that just total fantasizing? Well, I think, you know, to some degree it's wishful thinking or to some degree it's, it's projecting. I mean, I have been known to suffer from the same, <laughs> the same ailment. Um, no, I think, I think John Roberts does care deeply about the court. He cares about his own reputation, because it's going to be known in history as the Roberts Court, and he's the one with his name on the door. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he, he will be balancing that against um, his own agenda. And, and I do think he came to the court with an agenda, uh, certainly on questions of race, to get the government out of the business of affirmative action, of counting by race, taking race into account. I think he's had an agenda to lower the wall of separation between church and state to the extent that we don't have much left of the Establishment Clause. 
you know, whether he's got the same agenda on abortion, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, so it's going to be a balancing act for him uh, when, when he has when he has perhaps the five votes um, that he can count on, but he's got, uh, you know, he's sitting on the hinge of history, you might say. How's he going to jump? I don't know. It's going to be one of the absolute fascinating dramas of of the next few years. Well, Linda, we count on you to watch <laughs> to watch every dicta and keep us on alert. I'm serious about that. Um, I think you've just given us a good an excellent roadmap of what to watch and what to look for and sort of what to look for in a subterranean sort of beneath the headlines way. So that was incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Bye-bye. All right. Let's move on to our next topic, strangers on a plane. Here's how it basically happened. A woman named Rosie Blair asked to switch seats with another woman, Helen, so Rosie could sit next to her. Was it her boyfriend? Yes, her boyfriend, Houston. Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. Then Helen, the woman who switched, her seatmate is a guy who Rosie joked would be the love of Helen's life. His name is Ewan? Ewan. It's just Ewan. Yeah. Okay. And then Ewan and Helen do kind of hit it off and chat and flirt. And Rosie, who's sitting behind them, like crazy live tweets their every interaction, how close their elbows are, et cetera, et cetera. Hashtag Plain Bay is born. And subsequently... Helen gets harassed. Lots of op-ed pieces get written, breakdown of public and private. Um, And maybe we'll get to Rosie's apology (laughs) a little bit later because I've just told the whole story. But I think initially we have to decide, are you on Team Rosie or Team Helen? Like, was it okay to live tweet? Was it total invasion of privacy? Noreen, can you define what you believe if you're on either side? Yeah, for sure. And we should say that we only know the names Helen and Ewan because this turned into this viral sensation where – Ewan, the guy, when on the Today Show before they'd even gone their first date. Um, but when when uh, this tweet was going viral, when she was live tweeting the situation, no one knew their names. They were just totally anonymous, random, non-famous people on the plane. Um, I would say that I am not on Team Rosie. Um, I saw the tweet, maybe not in real time, the, the tweet storm that went viral, uh, but like a little bit afterwards and clicked on it because so many people in my feed were like, oh, this is amazing. This should be a rom-com. And I was kind of like, eh. <laughs> I don't know. It's like I I love people watching. I love people <laughs> watching on planes. I love sort of imagining scenarios between strangers sometimes. Um, I think that can be really fun. Mm-hmm. But I actually did not, first of all, find, I mean, the invasion of privacy is one thing. I, I do think she sort of did that by, I mean, she blurred out their faces, but she did go really, really deep on um this stranger's interaction in front of her. I just didn't find the the tweet storm all that compelling. First of all, like it wasn't that crazy what was happening. Like I've watched weirder interactions on you know planes. I've like I've had weirder interactions <laughs> on plane or more interesting interactions on planes or trains. Um and she wasn't like that funny to me. There was also a lot of um meta narrative about her own role in it that I found very distracting. It was sort of self-aggrandizing. And then she was tweet retweeting like people at home, like sending selfies of themselves waiting for the next installment. Um, so I just didn't think it was that well done. And the fact that it went viral, I think maybe speaks to some sort of hunger in people. And I can't tell if it's a hunger for serendipitous romance or if it's simply a hunger for more viral shared content moments. And mm-hmm. 
You and, know, both and, those are a little bit dark. And that to me is actually the problem. I mean, I'm with you. Like, I I didn't find it particularly compelling at the time. I find Rosie, uh, the the person who tweeted it, like she's had this like moment afterward. I you know I know that kind of person. I'm maybe I'm that kind of person. <laughs> no, you're not. Like that. Like <laughs> it's just fine. But to me, like the next stage of it is the problem. Like the fact that it got not only like such intense retweeting and so much attention in today's show segments and you know segments on the waves. I just worry that it establishes a precedent for this kind of content. Like we all. You know, we might have a conversation about something that we saw on a plane. I've had really weird experiences on planes. Like I've overheard weird things and I might tell people about it. Totally. But just the idea that that like we I think we just have to be really careful and shut this down because I don't want it to be okay to have this kind of conversation. I think Rosie actually was a little bit considerate like she did blur out the people she kind of scribbled them she scribbled over them so we couldn't see their faces and not everybody will be and I just think I don't want I want to set a like put a line in the sand and say you know what if you wouldn't I think Heather Schwedell in Slate said would you go on the kind of the plain uh, loudspeaker and and narrate this out loud no you wouldn't you would know that that was not cool like we just have to like it can't be okay to just make use of real people's interactions in this way. It can't be because that's really scary. But how many times? I don't know. I think it's the tweet stormness of it that that bothered me. Like if it had been a single tweet, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like I I think you know you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in public places. Um, I think a single tweet that doesn't necessarily, or even two that don't necessarily identify, it was the sort of stalkerish, obsessive yeah. quality of it. I guess it. But like I've I've tweeted about people I've seen in public before you know i bet you have done the same thing too but there's like there's a line that sort of i think we all know what's your view on this hannah what team are you on god i am listening to you guys so closely because because i i like i'm nodding my head and you guys are absolutely right and i wouldn't want to be in that situation and then i'm like too late like like you are kidding me like we you know like what we've we've totally trained ourselves and all of society through reality television that 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 kind of like private citizens are able to walk into a kind of mutual theatrical delusion with us in which their actual inner lives and who they are and whether they fall in love or they're actually going to marry this person, you know, bachelorette style is like irrelevant, but that we're all (laughs) going to collude together on a like a a store like a kind of ground up story about private people that we slot in. Like that's just the world. That's like the water we swim in now. So... Yeah. So I, d- I don't know. Like I, when you were saying the line, you said that like we all know the line. I'm thinking like what is the line? Like she she kept their names. Pri- she was just doing. Yeah, she like didn't a, know their names. She and she crossed she crossed yeah, out their I mean, faces. I don't even know how anyone found them. How did they find Ewan? The Today Show has its means. I think he maybe also. Prob. I think he's he's sort of fame hungry. It seems yeah. he's, he's like a former professional soccer player, current model. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he was all too eager. I don't know how they found Helen. That's well, then that, that to me, honestly, is the biggest shock of this. That Helen, although we first we although we know her first name, we don't know anything else about her because she has chosen not to take part in this circus. And that is well, people both found in, her social media. Yeah, but she is she has she is, she chose not to take part in it, which is incredible to me. Just because. I wouldn't. I'd be. Yeah. I'd be on the Today Show. <laughs> well, I think you know. Back to your point, Hannah, about the line. What's What's interesting to me about my own brain, like 
considering the story is I'm so much more bothered by the shoddy storytelling than I am by the privacy thing. (laughs) I just, you know, I just have higher expectations. Like we've all, I mean, sure, we've been marinating in reality TV, but we've also been marinating in prestige TV. Like people Mm -hmm. should be better at this by now. (laughs) Noreen, you're like, if you're going to ruin that woman's life, like, can you do it well? Can you do it beautifully? And not be like a shoddy ruination of that woman's life. I have to also point out that there is something about planes and actually also trains I think for those of us on the east coast where you are like you're stuck in that place and I have been in situations where I've wondered if people were kind of doing performance art Mm -hmm. like one time I was on a plane and the woman in front of me so in the Helen and Ewan position for Rosie Blair Mm -hmm. um, was made a phone call where she was asking a guy to have an affair with her (laughs) And it was, and it was like, it was when, it was before the plane took off. So it was when we could all hear and all the people are like, everybody, like, I don't like to talk to strangers. I don't even make eye contact. We were all like, can you believe this shit? Like we were just looking at each other because it was so, but like that is, it's an amazing opportunity for that kind of thing because you are, you can't move. You can't move and you can't do anything about, you know, you can maybe, you can't even put on your headphones at certain points yeah. now. So like there was always that question of like, was this was this a setup? Was this some kind of, you know, whatever? And I also think, like, to your point about the way the the way the story was told, like, it would be perfectly fine uh, if Rosie had been like, a, a, you know, a, a writer who would have taken this interaction, written a short story. Maybe it would have appeared in the New Yorker. It would about, have been a boring short well, story. Well, it would have. Though. But like, you know, like we, we all are fine with. Th- thinly veiled fiction yeah like well again she blurred out their faces it's just i for me it's not the situation itself it's just what it portends and i hear you hannah that ship has sailed but i just i want to kind of like keep keep holding onto the rope that this the ship is still attached to and try pull it back to to shore well you know june you your your story about someone, you know, talking about how they wanted to have an affair. And on. trying to persuade somebody to have one. Yeah, yeah. If you had tweeted that, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. I would have thought that you were just trying to manufacture something for retweets. That's how, yeah. like, dark my brain space yeah. is now. Actually, one of my initial reactions to seeing this was that I bet she's, like, exaggerating some details. Um, because I do just have this sense. Pe- people, like, I think people manufacture serendipity or some of these situations just for attention online. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm a total cynic for thinking that. And obviously, in this case, it seems to not have been true because, you know, the, these people have confirmed some of the details. But, like, I just think that people do that now is they want some crazy event to happen so they can get the viral attention that comes with it. Yeah, but um, we all want followers. You know, Rosie, again, that's why I have sympathy with Rosie. Like, she wants she wants followers. So she was telling her story 50 tweets deep. And, you know, and she was getting the likes and the shares. And so, of course, she was going to keep going. Like, right. it's all, it was, it's a, it is a loop. And she was getting the confirmation. She was getting the positive reinforcement. Like, I don't blame her. To, to me, like, the problem is in all of us that we're, that we're looking at these tweets that are, as you say, it's like it's not that great of a story. It's not that fascinating of a storytelling method. But we just like, 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 retweet, retweet, retweet. Like, it's our fault. and We're, we're, we're all to blame, Hannah. Man, now I'm the opposite. Now I'm thinking, like, can we not appreciate this as just, like, a small little modern story about boredom? Like, that's <laughs> that's why I appreciate it. I was like, this is really funny. Like, this is this is such a recognizable thing. Like, you're sitting there. You are so bored. You have to get through the flight. And so, like, your imagination goes. All right. Well, listeners, if you have a great plane story, 
I would love to hear it because June's was amazing. So if you have overheard something on a plane or, you know, I don't know, just any awesome thing has happened to you on a plane, please let us know at thewaves at slate.com. We'd love to hear it. Okay, let's move on to our recommendations. June, why don't you go first? So I have recently been watching a lot of Australian television, including a show called Dr. Blake Mysteries, the Dr. Blake Mysteries. And this is a show, it's like set in the 60s. It's about a a physician, a small town Australian physician who is also the police surgeon. And so, you know, they're kind of standard but pretty good mysteries. But the reason I am addicted to the show, especially in season four, is that there is a sort of a very slow burn and very well-modulated romance with his housekeeper. (laughs) And so... It's maddening, but also amazing because they really parcel it out in like two minute, uh, you know, in two minute slices. So you kind of watch this really, you know, the the mysteries are perfectly good, you know, and it's like small town Australia in the 60s. You know, it's interesting. They're fine. But all the time I'm like, yeah, yeah, he killed her. What about you and Mrs. Beasley? And so the the romance is so well handled and I'm totally there for the Lucian Jean uh romance of it all and there's complications and hurdles that are placed in front of them and it's it's super uh amazing i do want to note that when i i don't you know i never know anything about australian actors when i did look up the actor i learned that he has actually been accused of some sexually sexual improprieties so i do want to flag that that's too bad um, and very uh, distressing, um, but uh, I still enjoy the show. I have to admit the Dr. Blake <laughs> mysteries. I wonder if June should have not mentioned that. Or I know. Mentioned like, can that. I not? Because I did like I, I can't not mention. I it. feel like as an asterisk, it's so many and so many things oh, pieces yeah. of culture now. Exactly. It's like asterisk, exactly. bad man, exactly. bad man evolved, bad like, man. By the way, bad man evolved, right? Yeah, exactly. BMI, BMI. Um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend the Mr. Rogers documentary, which, you know, has gotten a lot of press, but I'm recommending it because it's running out of theaters very, very soon. And if you haven't seen it, you should really see it. Um, It's so lovely and such a sort of weird and genius idea for a documentary. And so many of the things and the things that he believed and the kind of ways he played them out strangely on stage have really, really stuck with me and actually changed my, like, there's one thing that went down in the movie between two hand puppets that really um, <laughs> that really affected me. I, wow. I just thought that movie was incredibly affecting in so many ways. And uh, and um, all of you who are on the fence and are like, really, Mr. Rogers, you know, just just go see it. It's pretty special. And it, what's it called? It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes, it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. Noreen? Um, I'm going to recommend two books. Um, the first is Bad Blood by John Carreyou. Um which is David's reading that. Oh my god, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. You can he said that, yeah. You'll just devour it. It's a story by the Wall Street Journal reporter who basically single-handedly took down Theranos, um which was Elizabeth Holmes's blood testing company that was valued at, you know, x billion dollars. She was the darling of, you know, magazine covers, the Obama White House. She was the self-made um female scientist billionaire who also happened to be blonde and, you know, wore a Steve Jobs turtleneck all the time. And it turns out the whole thing was this insane sham. It was a Ponzi scheme. It was she'd she'd pull the wool over everyone's eyes, including, you know, Henry Kissinger. Um, This book is just so fun to read. I mean, the stakes are very real. She I mean, 
when when she she went into this with an idea for a product that would have revolutionized um, medicine and had no kind of a like she had no breakthrough uh, and she just continued. Would have been lying. great. Would it? have been great. But she was, you know, the, the results they were giving people were insanely wrong. They were, you know, jeopardizing people's lives, making them think they had diseases when they didn't, making them think they didn't have diseases when they did. Um, really dangerous stuff. And it sort of like makes the case for journalism, but it's also just like really crazy fun to read. I'm sure the movie will be great too. And then I read, this is more of a like, I sort of want, I want listeners to write in and tell me how they feel about books like this. I read Martin Amos's Money for the first oh time. Oh my god, I love It's so good. It's so good. Amazingly funny. Amazing sentences. It's also like pretty horrible on the subject of women, right? Yes, and like yes. Martin Amos is like not exactly known for being a friend to women. But it didn't bother me, you know? And I, I think this is that's something I'm interested in how people deal with, react mm-hmm. to stuff like that mm-hmm. in their own brain. Part of the reason it didn't bother me is that the story of money is this, um, you know, this this film producer who is it, it's money a suicide note, and it's sort of he's writing it, it this whole thing from a point of desperation. He's going through this, you know, like insane bender in London and New York, and his life is falling apart. And you're meant to think that this guy is kind of a monster, and all of the ho- truly horrible things he does to women. Mm-hmm. I won't necessarily say them on air, but like just think of all the horrible things you could do to a woman or say about a woman, and it's in there. Um, they're part of the character who's falling apart. You're not sort of meant to think that, what like, a guy. right? What a, this is how you should think about women. Um, and I like, I'm interested in the way people react to books like this right now in this moment where there there is such policing around stuff like that. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed this book for all of the horrible things it says about women, and I think that we can still like separate out that those ideas. Um, so I'm curious if other people have read books like that and how they feel about them right now. I think I'm going to put that on my summer reading list now, Noreen, and because now you've given me a question to answer about it. Great. Uh, that's our show for today. Thanks to our producer, Verlin Williams. Uh, you can email us at thewaves@slate.com for any comments about the show. And remember, share with us your plane stories. Remember our live show on July 17th. We'd love to see you in D.C. Uh, you can tweet to any of us at Noreen Malone, at June Thomas, at Hannah Rosen. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again next week. 